Good morning, everyone. I'm Jack Burke, and alongside me is Will Woods. The justice system is the cause of many issues in our society, and today we'll be talking to Sonny Jacobs and Peter Pringle about their experiences with this system. They were, they were both wrongly convicted and sentenced to death. Sonny and Peter were then exonerated years later, and today we'll be hearing their stories. Sonny, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, if we can start off with this. So, Sonny, would you please be able to give us a brief summary about why you were incarcerated? Um, well, uh, my, my um, wrongful conviction happened in America, mm. in the state of Florida. And um, I guess, to make it brief, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And um, I ended up uh, being... Uh, falsely accused and uh, ultimately uh, sentenced to death for a crime I didn't commit. Okay, and what what was that crime that had happened? Ah, well, um, uh, there were two policemen uh, were shot and killed. Okay, um, and how did you feel when you were falsely convicted? Uh, I felt like. It wasn't real. Mm. I sort of felt like I was living in some kind of weird nightmare. Like a, yeah, like a nightmare. <laughs> that, yeah, if, that if somebody had shook me and said, hey, wake up, you were having a terrible dream. I would have gone, yeah, and that would have been much more plausible mm. than what was actually happening. So did it, did it take a while for you to come to terms with that? That you yes. had been convicted and you got that sentence? Yes, yes, it did. In fact, um, when um, during the trial, I was, was kind of annoyed. It was like, mm. what's going on here? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like, can't we just stand up and say that person is lying? I mean, why can't we just do that? And then um, uh, at the sentencing, um, when the judge actually, in my case, sat there and said he had me stand up in front of him and he said um, I sentenced you to, to um, have 2,400 volts of electricity sent through your body until oh. you're pronounced dead. Do you have anything to say? Really? Are you really supposed to be able to say anything? And I just asked if he was through because I, I just needed to go somewhere and try to process mm. what had actually just happened. Because I went into court thinking, well, you know, I mean, if they knew me for five minutes, they would know that I wouldn't kill anybody. Mm. And, like, if they knew me, like, I was, a, I was a young mother of two children. I was a vegetarian, so, like, I don't even eat meat, so I'm yes. not going to kill people. Yeah. And, um, and I was kind of a hippie at those, in those days, you know, peace and love, flower child. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. It was just ridiculous to me that anything like this could ever happen, but it was real. Was that ever brought up when you were in court about, you know, your, you know, sort of person you were and that you were unlikely to commit something like what you were accused of? Well, it, it, of course, it should have been. Yeah. I mean, it's logical that you would, you know, try to help the jury to see the, who the person really is, that they might be condemning to death. But my lawyer was a court-appointed lawyer, and he chose not to put up any defense. He said to me that we really didn't need to because there was no physical evidence whatsoever against me. The only evidence they used was the 
testimony of the man who actually was the killer mm. and a poor young woman who um, had been arrested for drugs who was going to university and was told that if she didn't help them, she would go to jail for a long time and, and never be able to go back to university again. So he didn't feel we needed to put up a defense, mm. and he said that would give him a better position at the end of the trial in what they call the closing arguments. So I went along with whatever he said. He's a lawyer. I didn't yeah, have anything yeah. to worry about, I thought. So There's a bit of, bit of corruption going on there. Yes, With how it was done with those people, yes. Yeah, yeah. and it happens everywhere. So, uh, how did this sentence affect your life? Well, how did it affect my life? It affected every aspect of my life and my children's life. Mm. My son was nine years old. My daughter was ten months old. She was still nursing. Mm. So, I mean, she was literally torn away from my body. And yeah. my son at nine had never known a babysitter even, except for his grandma and grandpa. So it was devastating. My mother said she never slept well for another night, worrying that they would actually come and execute me. And um, she said even going shopping was painful because she'd see things, she'd go, oh, she'd love to have that, but then she couldn't get it for me. And I mean, it was it, it affected every aspect of life, but for me personally, mm. uh, I, uh, the reality of what actually had taken place didn't really sink in until I heard the door slam behind me in what was to be my death cell. Yes. And it was at that moment when it felt like all the air had been sucked out of that room and I was alone and I heard their footsteps retreating down the hallway after the key turned in the lock, that's when it really hit me that this was real. So did you feel completely, you know, hopeless then at that point? Completely, absolutely, utterly at a loss as to what to do. Mm. I guess you could call it hopeless because I had no clue. I couldn't even take the next breath. That's how overwhelming it was. I couldn't breathe. I just was completely overwhelmed. Okay. God, yeah. What, what, would, I, would I be right in saying your husband was also given the same sentence as yourself? So if you don't mind me asking then, what became of your kids once the two of you were in jail? Right. So because both of us uh, were... Uh, wrongly convicted and yes. sent each one to the separate death row. He was in the men's death row. And it, my was called a death row, but it wasn't a row because there were no other women. So I was really alone mm. with nobody else in the whole building but me. Um, but um, the children, at first, I was told that they would be taken by social services mm. and, and taken care of until my parents could come and get them. But in fact, what happened was my daughter was given over to a family who was supposed to look after her without my being able to communicate with them mm. that she didn't know how to use a bottle because she had been breastfed. So they didn't know what to do with her. They thought something was wrong with her because she wouldn't eat. Mm. But she didn't know how to use that rubber thing. Yeah. And my son, as, as a nine-year-old, was taken 
um, into custody and sent to juvenile detention where he was questioned repeatedly without any representation, without any adult uh, there with him mm. except the police. And uh, he was kept in isolation because he is so young. And as a result, he, when he finally, my parents got a judge to release him after two months. Mm. He uh, uh, was so traumatized that he um, had to be sent to special school because he couldn't remember how to read or do math. And um, he developed a speech defect, like a stutter. And even to this day, as a, as a grown man, if he's put under pressure, he'll stutter because of that experience. So it was, it was terrible. So where are your kids now? Oh, well, um, neither of them ever chose to speak about their experience because yeah. it was so bad. And um, my daughter finally married and had children of her own and tried to give them the childhood that she was deprived of because of what happened. And uh, they live in the States. And my son, um, he also finally... Uh, found a partner and had a daughter, and um, eventually he moved to Australia. And he says he felt he feels safer there because in America he never could trust the system again. But that that is that is fantastic to hear that he's doing better now. But really, it sounds very you know barbaric that your nine year old son would be subjected to that. Yeah. But I'm wondering, did your did your parents? I think I read that your parents played some role then after your son was questioned and kept in that custody. Yeah, after after my parents were able to get a judge to release the children, and then they they took care of them and they lived with their grandparents mm. until um, about six years later mm. when um, my sentence was finally changed from death to life uh, because the jury, and this is a very interesting fact, the jury had voted for life. Okay. The jury did not vote for death, but the judge had already made up his mind and overruled the jury and sentenced me to death anyway. So when I got my first appeal after five years in solitary confinement waiting for them to execute me, um, finally, uh, the judge overruled uh, that um, decision and mm. gave me life. And... Um, uh, I think part of the reason that the original judge did that was because before he was a judge, he had been a highway patrolman, and I don't think he could really be fair in his decisions as you know as a result of that. But anyway, so my parents in the sixth year after finally my sentence was changed from death to yeah. life, and they didn't have to worry about me being executed anymore. They decided to take a holiday that didn't involve bringing the children to visit prison. Okay. And on the way, the plane crashed, and they were um, killed. And so my children became orphans again. My God. And I became an orphan again. Yeah, it was the worst day of my life, far none. Where, 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 did, where did they, did the kids go back into the social services after that, your parents' uh, death? Yeah, eventually they did go back into, they went into foster care. And um, my son... Uh, left as soon as he could mm. and went out on his own when he was, I think he was 15 and a half, 16, 16 when this happened. Mm. And by the time he was 17, he went out on his own. He had no 
backup. He had no support system. And uh, as a result, he never got to go to college and he never got to, you know, do any of the things that he might have been able to do. And um, it made life very difficult for him. My daughter uh, went into foster care uh, with some people who lived in the state of New York. Mm. So after about a year, they stopped bringing her to visit me. And eventually uh, they refused to let me even speak to her on the phone. So um, I lost touch with both of them for a while after that. I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was pretty horrendous. So, Sonny, your sentence got changed to life in prison. Uh, what happened to your husband? Well, his sentence never changed because um, his jury did vote for death. His trial lasted four days, if you can imagine. And uh, he also had a public defender. And um, so uh, eventually, after... 15 years, uh, he, he was executed. And the execution was known worldwide because the electric chair malfunctioned, and instead of dying, um, he caught fire, and it was pretty gruesome. They had to actually try to execute him three times. They did it three times yeah. until finally a doctor pronounced him dead. And there's a doctor who participates in every execution and it still it still went wrong like that yeah yes and later on we were told that they did that on purpose because they felt he should suffer more because he they, they thought he had killed the so that so they purposely gave all that great pain to an innocent man who they had more or less fabricated yes. evidence on yes but they at that time thought he was guilty they didn't know what the prosecutor knew yes from before our trials and the prosecutor hid this information until finally, after 17 years, uh, we were able to show that he had the information all along that showed that we were not guilty, that we were actually innocent. That was truly terrible. Were you given compensation for that? No, no, not not up any. In fact, when I was released, I wasn't even given enough money to get on a bus. No, nothing. I, I was given nothing. <laughs> Jesus. So, yep, and still to this day, uh, Peter will tell you the rest of that. Yeah. And neither of us has ever been compensated, and Peter still has a case in the court team. So, Sonny, uh, how are you treated in prison? Um, well, that's another thing. Um, one of the worst parts of being um, sentenced to death for killing someone is that people hate you. Mm. And being hated is something that I had never experienced before in my life. And it is actually a palpable feeling. I mean, you can feel the hatred, and it's so awful. And there was no way, nothing I could say to change that. And I could only hope that after a while, you know, of knowing me, that they would realize that I really wasn't the person that they thought I was. Mm. But unfortunately, because of the rules that were set up around uh, my... Um, my being in the prison, that the guards were under orders not to speak to me. So I couldn't have conversations with them to, to help them to know who I was. And um, it was that was one of the worst parts, was being hated. Yeah. And then um, they would come every hour to look, at, to look into this little um, opening in the cell. There was a solid metal door mm. on my cell. 
and um, they would peer in this small, uh, like maybe four by four uh, little window to see what I was doing and write it down. And then they would leave all without speaking to me. Every hour, 24 hours a day, day and night, they would do this. And I only got out of myself twice a week uh, for a brief shower and then maybe 15 minutes outside in the court courtyard with the guard and then back in. And they'd take away the prison uniform and put me back in my pajamas hmm. and send me back to the cell for another three or four days. And this was all without a word being spoken. You know, I would think it must be very hard to really retain your sanity in a situation like that where you can't speak more or less for 15 years to any of these people. So how would how would you have coped with those the time you spent in prison? Well, for those first five years when I was sentenced to death and the guards didn't speak to me and I wasn't allowed to communicate with anyone, mm. with any prisoners or anybody, um, I think sanity didn't apply. Mm. It like, wasn't relevant because my situation was... Insane. Mm, yeah. I mean, there was sanity really had nothing to do with it. So um, I, I had to develop uh, a different set of uh, principles uh, uh, by which to, to live and to judge my circumstances. And I think that's what made me dig deep inside myself. And it was more an instinctual thing rather than a sanity thing. Mm. And it was more an inner gut thing than it was a, a, a mental thing. Mm -hmm. Like everything I've been taught to believe in went up in, in, in the air. I mean, it, was, it, it had nothing to do with anything I was taught to believe in or right and wrong or, or civil, civilized behavior or anything. So um, first you feel like an animal. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I didn't have to be that way. That even though I couldn't leave there and I couldn't change my circumstances at all, and I think this is very relevant to today as well, um, I could change my reaction to those circumstances. Yes. And so I went inside myself not to hide, but to escape. And I began to use my own energy to create a different circumstance for myself within the circumstances that I couldn't change. So I made, I, I ended up turning my cell into a sanctuary okay. and viewing the guards as my servants. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Rather than, see, it was, and both realities were absolutely true. Yeah. It was true that they were there to keep me there and to ultimately escort me to my death. Mm. True, but it was also true that while I was there, I had free electricity. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I had servants to cook for me, yeah. do my dishes, wash my clothes, and take care of my every need, mm. which left me free to do my spiritual work, which I felt was the best thing I could do at that uh, time. Because if they were going to kill me, then the best thing I could do was to make myself the best person I could be so that when I went up there, I could account for myself. And if I was going to be released and back, go back to my children, which is what I thought should happen, yeah. then again, that was the best thing I could do was to make myself the best person I could be and preserve myself and not let me be 
destroyed by the circumstances. So um, it was just as true that I had people there to, to do everything for me so yeah. that I could do my inner uh, spiritual work. And so that's what I chose to do. It, really, it impresses me that you're able to make that out of the situation you were in. Uh, well, you know, you don't know what you have inside you until your back is to the wall and you have nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Yeah. And we all have this. We all have this. It's just that we don't we don't know. Nobody tells us that we're born with a whole set of tools that we can use in these circumstances. And I think that's what's so important is that um, uh, when people listen to my story and Peter's story is mm. that they realize that um, you do have tools, and the main tool is your breathing and your energy, and that you can have control over that no matter what the outer situation is. And so that's pr pretty much why we ended up doing what we do now. Okay. So, uh, Sonny, were there any positives about your time in prison? Like, did you learn anything new about yourself while you were in there? Loads. <laughs> I learned loads about myself and about, and about I think, um, people in general. Um, but uh, I learned that um, it's very important to be angry, but then it's very important not to stay angry. And it's very important to uh, try to see uh, other people in a compassionate light and then to ultimately see oneself in a compassionate light. Because I, I realized that I had to practice forgiveness mm. was one of the main tools that I used to free myself from the residue of this terrible ordeal. So, so you sort of weren't like uh, holding grudges against anyone? Well, I did in the beginning. I was really angry at the people who lied in my trial, at the stupid attorney who didn't yeah. stick up for me, at the judge who had tried and convicted us and sentenced us before we even went to court, uh, and, and lots of things. But I realized that that was only harming me. Mm. They had no clue. They didn't care. They'd probably be glad that I was mad and suffering. So I realized that unless I forgave them, um, I couldn't be free. And so I, I, forgiveness is a, is a selfish act that you do for yourself. And the, the other people don't even have to know. But it, it helps me to clear that negative energy out of myself and make room for something positive to come in. So that's what I decided to do. And I began to see myself as a spirit here on my journey. Yeah. And this, whatever happened, was part of what had to happen to me for me to learn whatever it was that I was here to learn. And I had to apply that same thinking to the guard and to the judge and to the, everybody. So if I'm a spirit here on my journey, then so are they. And so I could only have compassion for them. And ultimately, I was able to have compassion for myself because you're the last one that you can forgive. Because I somehow should have made better decisions. I should have known better. I shouldn't have gone with those people. I shouldn't have been, you know, you blame yourself. Mm. And so ultimately, I was able to forgive myself, which was really important. 
you're me- you're mentioning you know about your spirit there and all that. So did religion play a part in any of this, or what would you say? Um. Well. Um. It. It. Yes. Yes. Because religion was my doorway to the spiritual world at that point in time, mm. and I did call upon the early training that I've had as a child. You know, to believe in God and. And there are certain rituals, you know, um, from the Judeo-Christian religion yeah. that um, that I had that uh, that gave me strength and gave me connection I, because I was completely isolated. So those the, those uh, traditions and those beliefs helped me to connect outside and beyond myself to the to to the others, to my family, and to the people that. Um, you know, you get connected to when you believe in God. Mm. And then I realized, and at first I was so angry at God, because how could God let this happen to me and my whole family, my whole family? We didn't ever hurt anybody. So um, I had to kind of make peace with God <laughs> at first. Yeah. And I had to do that because it, without God, my situation was quite hopeless. I had no power. And they had all the power. But with God, I had a chance. <laughs> so I had a big discussion with God. And then um, it was uh, more a spiritual thing rather than a religious thing for me hmm. at that point in time because I had made, for me, a personal connection. With me and God, I, I talked to God, and, and I felt that God talked to me, you know, in yeah. my meditation. So when I would pray... I would be asking God to help me, help my family, help my children, help my husband. And then when I would meditate, I would be open to receive the answers. So um, it, it actually, for me, established what I felt and still do feel is a direct connection. And um, so that became essential for me. So I call it a spiritual uh, belief rather than a religious belief yes. because... Um, uh, at that point, I I felt uh, that I didn't need any particular way except for my my faith. Okay. Um. So, how did you feel when you were exonerated, Sonny? What was your reaction to it? And how did this happen? And yeah. <laughs> I was so happy. Yeah. I mean. Um, uh, joyous is the word that I have to use. Okay. Because you sit there and you're kind of waiting, like, is this really going to happen? And then they say, you can go. And I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> inside, you're like having this big celebration and little characters are jumping around inside you. <laughs> but, and there's one picture that uh, some newspaper took of that moment when they said, that I would be free to go, and they were taking the handcuffs off of me, and my face tells the whole story. And um, Peter and I, by the way, wrote each wrote a book, and the picture of that is in my book, and um, you can see. And we're going to uh, send a, a copy of each of our books to the school. So um, that, that would be lovely yeah, to, thank, to read. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Anybody who wants to know more can can have a read. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure we might give it a read ourselves. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> Um, after, after, oh, sorry, I wanted to actually ask, how, um, how were you exonerated? So what happened that, you know, led to you being released from prison? Oh, 
Okay, so um, after Jesse's execution, uh, well, I should say that all during the years, the guy who actually committed the crime mm. confessed a number of times, bragging to other uh, prisoners about how he had killed a policeman and had these two other people on death row for what he did. Yeah. And um, a number of times we actually got him to court uh, as a result, but um, always the uh, prosecutor sent someone to convince him to go back to his original trial testimony, and as a result he was given uh, different privileges in the prison. Mm. So he just learned to use that to play the system and we never prevailed in court. But uh, I had pro bono attorneys, uh, which means that they worked for free, and without that, none of us would ever be able to be exonerated or prove our innocence. Mm. And um, they worked uh, diligently through all the years, and then finally, after Jesse's execution, a couple of friends, uh, childhood friends, uh, came and worked with the attorneys, and with their combined skills, uh, one was a, a lawyer, one was a documentary filmmaker, and then the two lawyers that always worked for me, they were able to put together my habeas corpus with pictures. And that seemed to help the uh, judges to see that I, neither Jesse nor I could actually have done this. Mm. And so, too late for him. But after about two more years, I was finally released. So it was 17 years in total. So, uh, Will's just going to ask you a question just there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, obviously, earlier on in the show, you said that you didn't have enough money to even get a bus. So, what was the first thing that you did when you were released? Uh, I was escorted to the door with my little cardboard box of everything I owned in the world and told to have a nice life. The guards opened the door for me, and I was just left outside the courthouse wondering what to do mm. because nobody told me what to do and I was afraid it might be a trick and they just might shoot me and I just stood there for a while and then I decided to take a chance and I put the box down and walked around a little bit and then I saw a stairway and I just went down the stairway and I ended up in the street and started to run and I just ran I just ran and ran and celebrating, like with the sun and the moon and the wind, mm. because it was in the evening, so the sun and the moon were both out, and I just ran, and then uh, somebody stopped their car in the middle of the road and said, are you Sonia Jacobs? And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, how did they know? <laughs> and um, they said, some people are, are looking for you. Uh, and I was like, oh. And so... He pointed in a direction, and I just kept running, and I ran in that direction, turned around, turned out that I ran around the block. And I was back in front of the step, steps again, and I ran up the steps to the courthouse. Yeah. And there I found my lawyers and uh, my friends, and we had a big hug, and then they took me in their car. And so that's what happened. Uh, yeah, I, I, can, I can feel the joy from your voice about it. <laughs> it was amazing. That was the freest moment I've ever had before or since. Yeah. So, before we go on to talk to Peter about his story, um, and then we, we'll come back to you later if there's something else you wanted to ask, I just want to. I was just wondering, what do you think should be changed um, in the justice system, you know, maybe in America, maybe here, or maybe, you know, in general, to reform it? Accountability. 
Okay. That's the big word, accountability, because the prosecutor, in, in my case and in everybody else's case, that's, and there are over 2,000 people who have wrongly been convicted who have been freed so far, there's been no accountability. And, I mean, I mean that's just a no-brainer. Hmm. I mean, if, if, if there's no accountability, then people do bad things. You know? So, so the supports aren't there then for people who've been wrongly convicted. Well, that's true. That's true. And and it's always a person who has no money. Yeah. So, um, as you know, the the public system, you know, is is overburdened and underfinanced, and uh, so it's it's pretty hopeless. Yes. Anyway, I'll, I'll give you over to Peter now. Yeah. So we will we'll we'll, uh, we'll talk to you in a bit that in a few minutes then just for our sure. closing stuff. But thank you, Sonny, for sharing thank your you. story with us. Thanks. It was you thank know very interesting to hear your perspective about all of this. And thank you uh, all for uh, the very good questions. They were very well thought out. Thank Here's you. Peter. Thank you, sir. Sonny. Okay, hello. Hi, Peter. How are you? Thanks for being very patient, Peter. Thank you for your patience. You're welcome. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay, thank you. Good. So, Peter, um, can you tell us why you were incarcerated, uh, why you convicted and incarcerated? Good question, and to this day I'm not quite sure why. Mm. Uh, the best I can tell you is that um, I was a, a political activist from the time I was a teenager, a young Irish Republican, mm. and um, and so, as they say, I was known to the police, and so when they uh, were searching for the man they were looking for, mm. for the third man in the crime that had been committed and couldn't find him, they picked me up and trained me. And just just for the people listening to this, would you be able to talk a bit about the actual crime that was committed and that, yeah, you know, they blamed on you? Was, there was a, a part, and, this, and this is the police account. There was a bank robbery in Balladrin in County Roscommon mm. on the 7th of July 1980 uh, committed by three men who, who escaped in a getaway car and they burned the getaway car and transferred to a different car. And on their journey across country, they collided with a police car coming to try and intercept them. They, they collided at a small country crossroads. Hmm. And uh, there was an exchange of gunfire, and two police officers were killed. So the three perpetrators escaped, one in one direction, two in another direction. Hmm. One was arrested that evening on the side of the road, uh, some miles from the scene, and he had a bullet wound in his chest. And um, according to the police parole report, he told the police that his friend had also been shot. The second man was arrested the following morning, and the third man eluded them. And um, I had nothing whatever to do with mm. that. I was in a different county altogether. Um, and eventually, uh, 12 days later, they arrested me in a friend's house and um, took me to the police station. And what an extraordinary thing to me happened mm. then. They brought me into a room and they stripped me naked. And detectives walked around me inspecting my body minutely. And I didn't know why, what was going on there. And then they told me to dress. And uh, apparently, they were looking to see if I'd been wounded because the man. Yeah. Was arrested said his friend had also been shot and I hadn't been shot yeah. so that, I knew they were disappointed about something but I didn't know what it was Do, do you know why they came up with you 
I, I know you mentioned earlier your um, activism with the Republican movement, but I'm wondering in connection to the the bank, you know, why they went well, after I, you. Well, I, I, um, okay, I lived in in Galway, outside of Galway. Mm. I worked as a skipper on a boat carrying cargo out to the Arden Islands, and on that particular day, I took the day off to go to Killybegs, mm. and um, that's the fact that they apparently raided called in my house and I wasn't there. That's what led them to think that I might have some involvement. Plus the fact that I had a Republican background and I had been interned in the 1950s. Okay. So, if you like, I, I had a, a sort of a record. Yes. Later on, by the way, I just tell you, later on after all of this and speaking to a senior police officer and he asked me, why do you think that they picked on you? And I said, I don't know, except perhaps that I have a Republican background. And he said, oh, that's good enough. Oh. <laughs> so pro profiling then to a degree. Uh, good word, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how did your trial go, Peter? Uh, it was the weirdest thing. Um, okay. When I was arrested, I was remanded in custody to... Uh, by the way, I was tried by the Special Criminal Court, which is a non-jury court. And I was uh, imprisoned in Port Leisure Prison, which was the maximum security prison. Hmm. And... Um, what was I going to say? About oh, your yeah. trial. Um, so, when my trial commenced, for the first 12 days of my trial, my name wasn't mentioned. And I'm sitting there in the dock, and there are three people tried together, you see, the other two people that were arrested and myself. And um, the trial went on, and eventually, anyway, they came to my case. And during the course of my trial, it's very interesting, hmm. two days after the crime, uh, a police officer accosted the man they were chasing, whom they claimed was me, hmm. uh, had a grip on him and spoke to him, and um, tried to detain him, but the man struggled and got away. And when he was called into evidence in the trial mm. and asked if he could recognize the man, he said he was in the court, mm. and he pointed to a man in the public gallery, and he said, that's him standing up there in the public gallery. And, uh, and I'm sitting in the dock. Uh, I'm still convicted. Yeah. So, so um, why, and why, yeah. about, an interesting thing about that is, on that day of the trial, that was the most interesting thing that happened that day. Mm. And not one of the newspapers or radio stations or TV stations reported. Yeah, so it sounds like there may have been a bit like collusion. But why, why do you think then that they just, they left him there, you know, with someone actually who pointing at him while you were there not having done anything? I don't know. They, well, well, I put it like this. I, Thinking about it, I, I, yeah, he was in he was in the public gallery. All the people around him moved away from him, and and then he was allowed to leave the court. He wasn't detained or mm. questioned or arrested. And the whole point was, you see, that if they were to arrest him, that would be admitting that they had made a mistake about me, mm. and that would throw the whole trial into jeopardy. So they didn't. So this falsely got you in there, okay? Yeah. So obviously, with the man pointing out that the, the person was in the court who actually killed them, uh, how did you feel when you were sentenced to death? Well, uh, that evening, uh, well, 
I should try and describe to you the situation of the Special Criminal Court. Okay. If you look at uh, movies on TV and you see the defendant always sitting beside his lawyer mm. and can't consult with him, well, in the Special Criminal Court at that time, um, the dock where the accused sat was behind the lawyers, and the lawyers sat way in front, four or five rows in front, mm. facing the judges with their, their backs to their clients. So at no point during my trial could I consult with my lawyers during the trial. Mm. Uh, and the trial lasted for 23 court days over six weeks. Um, how did I feel about being sentenced to death? Well, by that stage, I, I, knew, I knew the system was corrupt. I knew the Special Criminal Court was a sentencing, basically a sentencing tribunal. Yeah. And uh, it didn't really surprise me that they would sentence me to death. But what did surprise me in a way was I wasn't allowed to say anything. Mm. They just told me I was going to be made... made uh, what they actually said was, you should be taken from this uh, court to the place where you were last held, and there on the 19th day of December 1980, you shall be made to suffer death by execution in the manner prescribed by law. And I later discovered that there was no manner prescribed by law by which they could have carried out the execution. Okay. Well, Everything was a farce. Yeah. Like, I was unlawfully arrested, unlawfully detained, unlawfully brought before the Special Criminal Court, which had in law no jurisdiction to try me. And am I right in saying that there's no, uh, there's no jury in the Special Criminal Court? Oh, no jury yeah. whatsoever, no. Yeah. So, Peter, what actually happened to the other two uh, people you were trialled with? They were sentenced to death as well. Mm. And did, did their sentence uh, go through? Were they executed? No, no, no. Uh, what happened was each of us were taken back to Port Leisure Prison and incarcerated there in isolation from the prison population. And, um, and the first night I was put in a cell, a single cell with two jailers in with me, mm. And I protested about this, and uh, then the following day, they, they prepared a, a larger cell, and uh, that's where we were each of us, the three of us were held. And in that cell, there was no natural light. The windows were blocked off. Yeah. The fluorescent lights were on 24 hours, 24-7. Uh, there were, for each prisoner, there were two jailers. The regulation was that I had to be in the presence of at least two jailers at all times. And, and what, so what there is that? were six, seven jailers in the room as well as the three prisoners. Yeah. That was horrendous, you know. Mm. Would, I, would I be right in saying that your sentence was commuted uh, before your execution? No, what happened was that, uh, yeah, what happened was that my, uh, the sentence was deferred pending mm. appeal mm. I made an application for leave to appeal and the application for leave to appeal was refused so I got no appeal and a new date was set for my execution uh, in June of 1981 yeah. and then on the orders on the direction of the government uh, the president commuted the sentence to 40 years penal servitude without any possibility of parole and uh, I was put out into the general prison population. And that happened to the other two as well. Okay. So uh, when you went out to the like general population of the prison, how were you treated in there? 
You mean by the prisoners? Yeah. Or, uh, and, or by, and, by, and the guards, too. Guards, so how was the experience, I, I was in, really? I was, the, I was a political prisoner in a political wing of Fort Leach Prison. Yeah. There were four landings on the wing. The top three landings were Provo's. Mm. And the bottom landing was made up of non-aligned prisoners, and I was one of the non-aligned prisoners. Mm. Um, and for two, three days, it was nearly euphoric because I was able to talk to people. Yes. But then reality set in, and I knew I had to do something about it, so I set out to try and prove my innocence, uh, which was very difficult because I, had, I, I left school when I was 13 years of age. Yeah. I had no formal education. I knew nothing about the law. And so I had to try and study law in a prison where there was no law library and where we were not allowed to have any hard-covered books in. And as you probably know, legal tomes are generally hard-covered. So I had to devise a system by where, which, whereby I could get what I needed. And I devised that and managed to uh, get around the um, difficulties yes. and establish my own law library. But so, then I couldn't study because I was so angry. In fact, I was enraged mm. uh, over what they had done to me. And um, I should tell you as well, at one stage in the death cell, I heard three jailers discussing at the foot of my bed what part they would have to pay, play in my execution, which would have been by hanging. Yes. They had been informed by the authorities that two jailers would participate in the execution. And the role they would have to play would be that when my body would come down to the trapdoor of the gallows, the two jailers would be underneath, and each one would have to pull on one of my legs to make sure my neck was broken. And that conversation and discussion happened in my presence uh, as if I didn't exist. Mm. And, um, of course, the biggest concerns were twofold. One, uh, whether they would be ordered to do the job or asked to volunteer. And two, how much money extra they'd get for doing that work because that wasn't part of their usual job. So they would profit then from hanging from you, essentially. My execution. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. What, what went through your mind then when you heard these guys talking about how they would go around oh, killing my God. you? I was furious yeah. and uh, upset and very, very furious and very upset. Yeah. But it did one thing for me it brought me to the realization that my death was a reality that, in fact, they would hang me or could hang me. Yes. And took it out of the surreal. And um, I also realized at that time that, actually, I wasn't afraid to die. But what I was afraid of was that I might not be able to die with dignity. Mm. And um, I determined that I wouldn't allow that happen. And so I determined that I would exist within my spiritual and mental being rather rather than in their world. Yeah. And, and that's what I decided to do. And so I started meditating. And and, uh, and when I went out to the general prison population and began to study, try to study law, and I couldn't do so because of my anger, mm. I got somebody to leave in a little yoga book, and I began to teach myself yoga in the cell and tried to learn how to meditate. And as I succeeded in those things, my anger abated and I was able to do my case. So, yeah, so leading on from that then, do you think there were any, well, I guess, positives about th that time you spent there? You know, maybe in Positive to... for me? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, as in, in, did you think that, obviously it's hard to gain something from an experience like that, I'm sure, but like how Sonny was talking about, you know, how it helped her learn about 
forgiveness and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, at that stage, um, like I, at that stage, I was an atheist. Mm. I had no belief in God. I left the church when I was 14 years of age. Yeah. And I had made a mistake and I left God as well as the church because in my juvenile mind, I thought that God and the church were the same thing. But when I was in the cell and, and try, met, as gradually as I got to meditate and I got to practice yoga, uh, my focus changed and I began to realize that I was getting help from somewhere. I didn't know where. There was nobody with me. I was on my own in a cell. Mm. And uh, I realized that there was an energy out there that was actually helping me. And I discovered to my amazement that I, I actually was good at the law. Yeah. I, I, I had a, a, an ability for it. And so I prepared my own case. And uh, in 1992, I took it to the High Court on my own behalf. So how did you how, how did you over uh, how did you manage to overturn your conviction? Well, I took my case to the High Court in January of 1992, representing myself against the top lawyers of the state, mm. and they would bring me up each morning. They'd wake me I'd, they'd wake me up at six and take me out, and I'd be strip searched, of course, and then put in a, a police van, a prison van and with armed escort of police and military are taken up to the four courts, lodged in a cell up the, up the, up the top of the building, and then brought down to the, to the trial. And when I was brought into the courtroom, nobody else would have been allowed into that courtroom before me mm. because security was intense. And so for the first time I sat, I went in, and there was a big, there was a big bench with a cushion on it where the senior counsel sit, but I didn't know that, and a big yeah. table. So I sat there, <laughs> and my two jailers sat beside me, and I had uh, my, my briefcase was a, the lid of a banana box with my files in it, yeah. which one of the jailers carried. And so when the case opened, counsel for the state stood up and started to tell the judge about the case. Yeah. And I let him go on for a few minutes, and yeah. then I put my hand up, and I said, excuse me, and the judge said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm Pringle. I'm the plaintiff here in this case. And I said, there's no fair play in this court, mm. I said, because I understand that in such cases, the plaintiff goes first, and then the defendant defends. Mm. Whereas here, the defendant has gone first, and I'm not being able to say anything. So the judge turned to the lawyer for the defense, the senior counsel, and told him to sit down and told me to continue. And then I held my arms up, and I said, they'd have to remove the, the chains. Yeah. And so the shackles were removed, and I conducted my own case. Um, and my case ran from January 1992 until May 1995, when mm. my conviction was overturned. And at Christmas of 93, I got a communication from a lawyer in Dublin offering me his assistance, a human rights lawyer named Greg O'Neill, who was a wonderful solicitor. Mm. And... Um, he came to see me, and together we put the case... By that stage, new law had come in, which provided that one could go before the Court of Criminal Appeal where new facts were uncovered about the case. And so uh, we brought the case before the Court of Criminal Appeal, and the conviction was overturned in May 1995. Okay. Now, I wasn't released immediately because the state asked for a retrial. And so I was sent back to Port East Prison on remand, facing the same charge, 
to appear the following day before the Special Criminal Court. And on the appearance before the Special Criminal Court the following day, um, I uh, I got bail. Mm. And then the following the following week, the state dropped the case and they entered the knowledge prosecutor, and that was the end of it. And just, just to ask you quickly in relation to that, I think I had read somewhere that about the policeman having written something in his notebook about yeah. that having some significance. Yeah, well, what happened there was the detective sergeant... Uh, I was arrested at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, mm. and my, I was interrogated from 3 o'clock Saturday... From 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon until 4.30 Sunday morning, and then I was put in a dirty cell. I was taken out at 8 o'clock and interrogated from 8.30 Sunday morning until 4 o'clock Monday morning and put into a cell at 8 again until 8 o'clock Monday morning, taken out and interrogated from 12 o'clock when I was brought before the Special Criminal Court. And at about 9.30 that morning, in his notebook, uh, well, actually, the detective entered in his notebook that I'd spoken certain words which I never said, Yeah. Uh, which they claimed was a confession. And when I got the copy of his notebook in Discovery, uh, there I saw that he had entered the words uh, that I was alleged to have said at um, 9.30 in the morning. He had entered them into his notebook before 8.30 the same morning. So he entered the words in his notebook before the interrogation commenced. And in his record of the interrogation, there's no mention of the words. So really your whole sentence was sort of based on a lie then? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Peter, what was your reaction when you were exonerated? When I was exonerated. Ah, <laughs> that was a weird day too. Um, well, well, when I was exonerated, uh, it was a reserve judgment. You see, I was brought up in the prison. They, they, they um, crossed the conviction, hmm. but then a retrial was ordered, and I was brought back to the prison on remand awaiting the same charge. Mm. And then I was brought back to the court and I was released then the following day on bail. And that's when I was actually out into the public. And when I went outside of the courthouse, well, my, my, my lawyers were there, of course, and my son was there with his fiancée. And, and uh, I was able to embrace them and it was wonderful. And I was out on the steps of the courthouse, surrounded by media. Yeah cameras and microphones and throwing questions at me. It was bizarre. To me, it was like surreal. And uh, then almost immediately afterwards, I was taken by my solicitor to RTE in Donnybrook, mm. and we were interviewed for the 6 o'clock news that evening. And uh, in the meantime, my friends had uh, booked a room in the Bard's public house in, up at uh, Charmond Street Bridge. And they had booked the whole floor, and uh, the party had started. So when we went from the interview with the TV uh, to the pub, the celebrations were already ongoing. Mm. And and I was there with them, and uh, but I wasn't drinking. And um, when that was all over then, I went to stay with my, fr my friend's house in Dartmouth Square, and the following morning when I woke up, I went down to the kitchen. I was the only one there. And I went out into the back garden, which was very beautiful. It was a wonderful, sunny morning. And there were no big walls around me and no barbed wire around me. 
and I strolled down the garden and there was a very old apple tree down near the bottom of the garden. And when I got to this old apple tree, I put my hand I put my arms around it. And I had I just suddenly realized that that, you know, during all the time that I'd been in prison and all the things I had to go through, mm. this tree was growing away peacefully in this back garden, producing its apples every year, shedding its leaves, growing with nature, and, uh, you know, impervious to all that was around it, the, the, the city and the traffic and the greed and the hustle and the bustle and the rat race and everything else. And uh, I put my arms around the trunk of the tree and I wept. And that was when I realized that I was free. This must have felt really fantastic after all those years that you, you know. Yeah, and I'll never forget that apple tree. Hmm. So, so, yeah, that was, that was what happened to me. So, Peter, um, what do you think should be changed in the justice system to reform it? I know we asked only the same question, but... Yeah, well, in my opinion, there are three essential elements missing not just from the justice system, but from our society. Mm. And those elements are uh, transparency, equality, and accountability. Yeah. And I think we need those elements in the justice system. We need transparency because, um, you know, we, we were never shown the notebook of the police officer and the way he had entered those wards. We were never shown the fact that... Um, at one stage in my detention, I was bleeding, mm. and uh, they took a sample of the blood and sent it away for analysis, and then they got rid of it. And that was never revealed either. So uh, there's a tendency not to reveal evidence to the defense, yeah. even though in law they say they should do. And um, and it's a human nature thing. You have to understand it's human nature. If, if, if Visualize yourself if you're a, a prosecutor or you're a police officer and you have somebody that you suspect of a crime, and you feel that person is guilty, but you don't have the evidence, it's always a temptation to either manufacture a piece of evidence, to hide something or add something, you know, to, to make a little adjustment so that you can get a conviction. Yes. That's human nature. Yeah. So we have to have transparency. We have to have equality, that uh, the accused has equal rights to the prosecution. And we have to have accountability so that, for example, if somebody um, presents false evidence, if somebody does something wrong, that they're made accountable. Mm. And that those things don't exist. But they don't exist in politics either, by the way, but yeah. that's life. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think those are those are good points. And I, I, I'd just be interested to hear your view, given it was the court that convicted you. If you don't mind me asking, what would your view be on the future of the Special Criminal Court? Mm -hmm. Well, I take the view that the Special Criminal Court should be abolished. Yeah. I see no good reason for having it there. It's used as a, a quick way of getting uh, convictions. Mm. And, um, you know, they say it's because of the threat to witnesses, but we have no evidence that witnesses are being threatened. And, um, you know, well, there is, of course, an, a non-jury court in the north, too, called, originally called the Diplock Courts. Um, but these courts were established at a time of trouble. Yes. Which is over now. We have a peace process. And so there's no good reason to have them there. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's fair enough. So, 
if, if can just ask now, just some things we have just to ask to both of you. Uh, can can Sonny hear us? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just to, to everyone listening, that you two are married. So, um, would you be able to tell yeah. us a bit about, you know, how this came about? Like yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Sonny. You tell them, tell them something about your time yeah. in Texas. I'll start off and then Peter will continue. Yeah. So, um, I uh, was uh, campaigning against the death penalty. Yes. In the U.S. And I was, I happened to be in Texas that time. Um, and this was about. Uh, yeah, well, 89. no, 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 no. 89. Okay. Let me talk. This was about 1995. Okay. Right? I was released in 1995. Right. So what year then was I? 98. Oh, okay. It was 1998. Good. Okay. Around 1998. We have to figure that out. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. So, oh, sorry. In around 1998, I was working against the death penalty, and I was in the state of Texas, and uh, I did a presentation in... George Bush's church, actually. Okay. He used to be the president. Yeah. And um, uh, there was a group there uh, from Ireland, uh, Amnesty International. Okay. And they asked me afterward if I would come and speak at their AGM in Cork. Yeah. And I was thrilled because, gee, I hadn't been anywhere, you know, and, and because I'd been locked up most of my adult life. Of so, course, yeah. Um, I was very excited about that. And our next stop was in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, where Steve Earle was located, the Galway girl Steve Earle. And he's an activist as well against the death penalty, among other things. And so I said, oh, Steve, I'm go I've been invited to go to Ireland. And yeah. he said, when you go to Ireland, you got to make Peter Frank. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So, And that's all he said. He didn't give me his number or anything. But when I got to uh, Ireland... Um, uh, somebody else said to me, did, do you know Peter Pringle? And I said, no, but if you give me his number, I guess I should be calling him. <laughs> so um, I got his number and I called him. And then now Peter... Yeah, well, I, I, in the meantime, um, I had come to know Steve hmm. and um, we had become friends and he knew my story and I knew his. And uh, I got this phone call one day from an American lady who told me that uh, her name was Sonny Jacobs. And that she was going to be meeting at a, speaking at a meeting in Galway the following Friday. Yeah. And invited me to come along to listen to her. And I asked her, what are we going to talk about? And she said, the death penalty. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm interested in that. So I went along and brought two friends with me. And I heard her speak. And I was traumatized by the horror of her story. I knew I had to speak with her. Mm. And so afterwards, we, she told me that she had to leave. Uh, in an hour because uh, she was traveling the country with this secretary yeah. of Amnesty who knew me. So when she told her that I had invited her to stay over, she was delighted. And so Sonny transferred her case from uh, Mary Lawless' car to mine, mm -hmm. uh, her suitcase, and, um, and that was it. So she spent the night in my house, mm -hmm. and the following morning we went to breakfast to my friend's cafe, and um, he said to me, are you going to drive her down to Cork? And I said, yes. 
And he said, well, you can't go on that old jalopy of yours. He said, and he gave me the keys to his Mercedes. Yeah. And uh, so I was able to drive Sonny down to Ireland in a nice Mercedes <laughs> and um, show the sights along the way. And as we were crossing the Shannon on the car ferry, uh, Sonny said to me, uh, so what's your interest in all this? Because I hadn't spoken about my story. Okay. And uh, so I told her. And she said, and how did you manage to get through? And I told her yoga and meditation. And so that's what she had used as well. This immediately was an immediate bond with her. Yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, we went to Cork and she spoke there. And afterwards, the Amnesty put us up, got us two rooms in a hotel across the road uh, where we stayed. And we went to my room and we discussed, for three hours, we discussed forgiveness. Okay. Which was the most important thing in our lives at that time. And so I, she went back to America and I went back to Galway. And um, we kept in correspondence. Mm. And then I organized some yoga workshops for her here. Okay. And she came over. And actually, when 9-11 happened, she was teaching, teaching yoga in Limerick Prison. And... Um, so we decided we would try to live together. Yeah. And she reversed everything her, her ancestors had done, packed two big bags, got rid of her apartment, sold what she could, gave away what she couldn't sell, and came to Ireland. And we've been together since that's 2001. Yeah. And we got married. And uh, we, we were living in a two-bedroom two bedroom cottage. And somebody asked us, would we try to help a man who had been exonerated who was in a bit of bother, and we said we would, and he came and stayed with us for a month. And from there, the Sunny Center Foundation grew, and until eventually we were in America, in New York, and uh, we met these wonderful people, and this lady said to us, do you have a foundation? Mm. Now, I didn't know what a foundation was, because here it's a charity. Yeah. And I said, what's a foundation? She told me. I said, no, we don't. But she says, you need to have one. So the Sunny Center Foundation was established. And we have a board of directors in New York. And we have we host exonerees when we can, not during the pandemic, of course, mm. to help them to recover in the inward, inner sense uh, from what has happened to them. Using our experience, because we've both been there and done that, so we know what they're going through. And we have an outreach program, and we've, we have a, a little community for exonerees in, in Florida. Yeah. And we have we managed to procure by friends on, on the board a property there with four little houses on it, and so we have exonerees living in community there. Okay. And our work has grown globally. And so now we work with people in Pakistan mm. and in Taiwan and in Uganda and South Africa and Holland and Britain and Ireland, of course. Yes. So, there you go. So, yes, yeah, so, yeah, that's good to hear. And I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the story did then have a bit of a happy ending with you guys getting together. But yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're very happy together. Yeah. And we live together. We're in lockdown, of course. We're in of course. Lockdown. So, yeah. Where we live is very beautiful, and uh, lockdown for us doesn't mean we're confined to the house. We can yeah. go out around, you know. Are you, are you up in Galway? In Connemara. Oh, lovely. So how, how are you finding it altogether, like the lockdown and this whole situation? We don't have any problems with it. I think I can speak for both of us in saying we don't have any problems with it. 
because we 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 uh, we love each other and we get on well together, and uh, and so we live our lives here. And we, now what's happened is the work has changed, mm. and we do a lot of work now with Zoom and with the telephone, and uh, we're still helping people, exonerees, and people all over the world, and uh, so it's been done by Zoom and by telephone now. Yeah. But I have to add for you yeah. that um, God is still, um, you know, part of our team, let's say. And, um, I mean, not a day goes by. We say a prayer of thanks in the morning, in the evening, anytime we go in the car, yeah. anytime we feel particularly happy. I mean, um, it, what the heck, I guess that's true. So um, that spiritual aspect was the basis of our actual, you know, uh, relationship and growth together as well as individually and remains so. Mm. Yeah, and and um, we have a good life and we don't judge people. Yeah. And as far as we can, we help people. Well, there's, there's certainly good things to practice, but can I, can I ask you guys if you could... Um, Based on all these experiences you've had throughout your lives, any advice that you might give to us and other people our own age about Young just people, going through life? Yeah. yeah, well, I would suggest that you... It's a very good thing to learn to meditate. Hmm. Meditation is a wonderful thing, and um, it's not difficult to do. And um, it would help you to... Um, be within yourself. Yeah. You know, patience is a, is, is a difficult one because it's very difficult for to have patience. And patience is a requirement of life. That's a cat. It's okay. It's a cat. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. To her. I'll go. You, t- you speak to You mm. speak to her. I'll go. She's just looking for food. She's behind us. Okay. No, it's no problem. Oh, I, 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 that was a cat looking to be fed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're 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 nearly done now. But Sonny, would you would you have any advice as well on top of what uh, Peter just told us? Yes, um, I suppose along the same lines. We we though um, we have what you call a YouTube channel. Okay. And I I told you, Sonny, that she looked well. No, leave her alone. Let her throw up, please. Okay, you'll have to cut this out of the thing. But anyway. Um, it's, it's all right. Don't yeah, worry. No, we'll, 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 be able, we'll be able to deal with that. Yeah, no worries. Your well, cat won't be haunting the broadcast. Okay. <laughs> we have a YouTube channel. Yeah. And um, each week in, in, during this uh, quarantine time, I've been making a video. Yeah. And um, I've... One of them is, they're, they're helpful at this time, I think, for everyone. But one of them is about um, having choices and mindfulness. Yeah. And what I've realized, uh, because I was telling people you always have a choice, but then uh, someone said, not not to me, but I read this, that, you know, they say you have a choice, but how do you make these choices? And I thought, oh, well, how do you make these mm. choices? And that's where mindfulness comes in. Because if you're, if you can... Be present in the moment, even, as I said in the video, like when you have your cup of tea or coffee in the morning, you know, and you and you boil the kettle and, and you listen to the sound of the water boiling and you feel the heat of it and you pour it in the cup and mm. then the steam rises up and you get the smell of it. And then when you first sip it, 
and then you, you can feel it go down. And if you can just be mindful, then you can separate the trees, the individual trees from the forest. Yeah. And and you can start to realize that you have choices and then go on to make them. So um, I think it's important always to remember that you do have choices. You can't always change your circumstances. Mm. You're stuck with them, especially as a kid. Well, that's, that, you know? that, yeah, that, that's certainly accurate advice. Can I ask what, what the name of your YouTube channel is so we can share it with the people uh, listening um, to this? Yeah, there's one that's called Sunny and Peter. Yeah. And there's another one that's the Sunny Center. Okay, so E N T E R, like the American way of spelling. So Sunny and Peter and the Sunny Center. Yeah, but you have to spell it the American way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you to both of you very, very much for speaking to us today. I thought it was really interesting. I'm sure when this will be on the radio, which will be in November, that people will find this very interesting to hear your story. Oh, great! And you'll tell us. You when know, yeah, we'll we'll let we'll let you know how to find it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So, That's great. And thank you both. So, thank you. Thanks Good very job. much today to our fantastic... All the best. God bless everybody. You too. Thank you. Bye. Have um, a good day. Okay.